you had designed the perfect system based out of so many of your disciplines and habits and loves and passions of nature, for example, in, in the past. But the next insurmountable problem, or so you thought, was getting everybody to accept it. And this was a huge challenge for you. We were faced then with the problem of getting actual consent from all the banks. And the executive committee was having a final meeting to decide whether to go ahead or not. And it had been agreed that the Bank of America would give their position about surrendering ownership to us at that time. So as the committee was starting the meeting, a call came in, vice president of the Bank of America, with whom we'd been negotiating. And I was a little more than shocked at what he said. He said that the bank had considered this carefully, and the only way they would agree to participate and surrender ownership would be if the bank could control and direct the management for the first five years. That was just contrary to all our principles and everything we believed in. So I thought very quickly, I lowered my voice a little bit. I started to space my words and I said, I can understand your position, Ken, but you're saying that Bank of America will not agree unless they can so I paced my words, he interrupted, as I hoped he would, and said, what are you doing? I said, well, Ken, I'm writing this down carefully to be able to quote you to the uh, committee now. Their meeting is just starting. And inform them of your position. I'm going to recommend to them that we abandon. If we do, and if they agree with me, uh, we'll have no choice but to notify all of the licensee banks in the country that the effort is being abandoned. And, of course, we'll need to put out a press release. And when we do that, I don't know whether they'll agree with me and abandon the effort. But if they don't, I'll have to withdraw because I simply can't personally be a part of it. There was momentary silence, uh, and then I said, Ken, this has been carefully considered by the Bank of America, and this is your final position on the subject. And then he said, well, yes, it has, but maybe you ought to come out to San Francisco and talk to Sam Stewart, chairman of the bank, and it's number two officer. And... <laughs> So it wasn't really the bank's last word on the subject. So uh, I said, well, I'll, I'll be happy to do that. And I'll fly out there directly after the meeting. So I went into the committee and explained the position of the bank and deferred making a final decision of the committee until I could talk to the senior management of the Bank of America directly. And I had never, uh, other than my conversations with Max Carlson, had anything to do with top management of banks. 
And here I was in an elevator ascending to a second in command of the largest bank in the world. Went up the elevator and went into his office, which was a beautiful location overlooking all of the San Francisco Bay. And uh, he was a, a sort of a, a rotund fellow, but very impressive with a great voice. After a few pleasantries, we sat down. It was clear to me that he had agreed to the meeting for the purpose of telling me why uh, the bank had taken that position and why it was essential and why it was important. Licensees had uh, accepted licenses depending on the bank's expertise and authority, and they didn't control the management. It would be breaking faith with all the agent banks and uh, how important it was to them to uh, have some control of management, be sure that the new organization got off uh, to the right foot and deficiently. <clears throat> well, I thought that was completely wrong, but I listened until he was through. And then I, I Mr. Stewart, it's, it's probably presumptuous for the vice president of a small bank in Seattle to tell the vice chairman of the board of the largest bank in the world that he's wrong. But I sincerely believe your position is wrong. I can see why you would have that position because of your perspective. But there's other perspectives which lead me to believe that a position you're taking is not only not in the interest of the system and all the banks, but is not in the best interest of Bank of America. He listened to me, tipped back his chair and looked at me, stared at me really for about 30 seconds and said, you really believe that, don't you? And I said, yes, sir, I do. And he said, well, would you go uh, home and call that in writing to me, send it to me, and would you come back in two weeks? And I said, well, I'd be very happy to do that. So I left home, thoughtfully composed a page letter of, all the reasons why I thought it was wrong and that if the bank took that position, the licensees would never trust the new organization and no uh, leader of any consequence would be able to take the chief executive officer's role in it. And so it, it couldn't possibly have the best management. Flew back in two weeks, met with Sam again, and I uh, was absolutely astonished by what he said. He said that the bank had considered everything I had said very carefully, and that in the main, and there were a few things to be ironed out in the way of compensation and so on, but he didn't think that would be any obstacle. And from this point forward, they would abandon their... Uh, previous request and would be in full and complete 
agreement with the principles of the new organization and its implementation. And I was just astonished, but enormously pleased. He asked me then to come up with a, a plan for getting the consent of all the banks, uh, over 200 cartridge ring banks in the U.S., and come back and, and discuss it to them. I had no idea how that would be done, but I, I really agreed, and I would do my best to come back with a sensible plan. Well, that left me not quite knowing what to do. So I decided it was time to go back and get some help. And uh, I decided to go have a meeting with Maxwell Carlson on how to get uh, this colossal job done. And his response was that this uh, kind of decision could never be made at lower levels in the bank that it was the kind of decision that would only be made by chief executive officers working with their boards, and that the only way to get this done was to not mire it down with middle management, but put it directly to the chief executive officers of each bank. And I said, well, Mr. Carlson, I've never met a chief executive officer of a bank other than yourself. I would have no idea how to uh, reach them all in the time frames we're faced with and certainly need help. And he said, well, I couldn't help you because our bank is a very small bank in relation to other banks across the country. So you would probably need uh, help. Why don't you ask the chief executive officer of B of A for help? I told him, well, I've never met him. And he said, well, you know uh, Sam Stewart, the vice chairman of the board. Perhaps he could help. I thought that was a good advice. I went back to see Sam Stewart, explained the whole problem. And meanwhile, I had thought of a way that this might be done based on experience with the Licensee Association. So I asked him, could you contact the chief executive officer of a major bank that we've been working with and ask them if they could come to a single meeting at which I could present what we wanted to do to them, give them all the documentation, bylaws, operating regulations, history of the effort, and ask them to go back to their banks, consider it uh, with their legal officer, and come to a second meeting uh, 30 days later to tell us whether their bank would accept the new program, and if it would, to call meetings of all the chief executive officers in their region and Sam said, yes, I, I think I could arrange that. It's a little short notice, but I'll do my best. And uh, But he said, if, if we do arrange such a meeting, uh, I'm not going to present this as a program of the Bank of America. 
I want to be in the same position of, as all the others of his, listening to everything. So he said, you'll have to do all the presentations as you have with us and answer the questions. Well, I had no alternative but to agree to that. And so uh, I was faced with going to this uh, meeting. You highlight there a common challenge for so many change makers and innovators, and that is overcoming blockers within complex organizations. So many ideas are killed by middle management like Max Carlson identified, while leadership may accept those ideas. And here you had to lead and adduce and use those concepts of leadership that you really, really focused on and you and Monkey Mind dissected and peeled the onion over. I'd love at this stage if you shared your philosophies on leadership versus management. Yes, well, I have to go back a little bit, uh, Aiden, and say how I had spent so much time with what I call peeling the onion of simple words I thought I knew well, such as management, supervise, administer, lead, and follow. They turned out not to be so simple after all. A leader presumes followers, and the followers presume choice. One who is coerced to the purposes, objectives, or preferences of another is not a follower in any true sense of the word. He's an object of manipulation. A true leader can't be bound to lead, and a true follower can't be bound to follow. The moment they're bound, they're no longer a leader or follower. If the behavior of either is compelled, their relationship is altered to one of superior subordinate, manager employee, master servant, or owner slave. And all such relationships are to a greater or lesser degree based on compulsion or to be explicit on tyranny. And the best definition of lead I've ever found comes from a centuries-old Scottish dictionary. And it's very simple. It said the lead is to go before and adduce behavior. It's the essence of true leadership. It can be contrasted, that word, with induce, too often used meaning to prevail upon or move by persuasion or influence to impel, incite, or urge. What I've done over the years, I've had countless discussions with hundreds of groups in a wide variety of organizations about management, either aspirations to it, dissatisfaction with it, or confusion about it. And to avoid ambiguity, I'd ask each person to describe the single most important responsibility of any manager. And the responses were enormously diverse, but they had one thing in common. They were all downward looking. They had to do with exercise of authority, with selecting employees, motivating them, training them, appraising them, organizing them directing them, and that perception is completely mistaken. The first and paramount responsibility 
anyone who purports to manage is to manage themselves, their own integrity, character, ethics, morality, time, temperament, words, and acts. And that is a never-ending, difficult work, largely ignored, because it's much more difficult than prescribing and controlling the behavior of others. Without that kind of self-management, no one is really fit for authority, no matter how much they acquire. In fact, the more authority they acquire, the more dangerous they become. And when uh, the groups would think deeply about it, rarely did anyone disagree that that was really the paramount responsibility. And uh, in my view, it should take at least 30% of our time and energy. The second responsibility is to manage those who have authority over us. Bosses, supervisors, directors, regulators, and so on. In an organized world, there are always people with authority over us. Without their support, how can we follow conviction, exercise judgment, use our creative ability, and achieve constructive results, or create conditions by which others can do the same? So devoting a quarter of our time and ability to that effort is really not too much. And I would ask them for the third responsibility. They would become a little uneasy at that point. Uh, Yet their thoughts remained on their subordinates. And uh, mistaken again, the third responsibility is to manage one's peers those over whom we have no authority and who have no authority over us, associates, competitors, suppliers, customers. Without their respect and confidence, little can be accomplished. And peers or environment can make a small heaven or hell of our life. Devoting a quarter of our time and ingenuity to managing of peers is not too much. The fourth responsibility is to manage those over whom we have authority. And the common response is most, at least 80% of their time, would be consumed managing themselves and their superiors and their peers. And there would be little time left to manage them. And that, in my judgment, is precisely right. For if one selects and hires people of good character, introduces them to the concept, deduces them to practice it, and then in turn, for them to replicate the process, what would one have to do if they effectively manage themselves, effectively manage us, effectively manage their peers, and effectively replicate the process, what is there left to do but see that they're properly recognized? And the obvious question then erupts, how do you manage bosses, peers, regulators? And the answer is equally obvious. You cannot. 
but can you understand them? Can you persuade them? Can you motivate them? Can you disturb them? Can you influence them? Can you forgive them? And eventually, in such meetings, the proper word would emerge. Can you lead them? And of course you can, if you probably led yourself. There are no rules or regulations so rigorous or organizations so hierarchical, no bosses so abusive that they can prevent you from using your energy, ability, and ingenuity. They may make it more difficult, but they can't prevent it. The real power is yours, not theirs. And I would end by saying, forget management. Lead yourself. Lead your superiors. Lead your peers. Employ good people. All else is trivia. There's a quote that I pulled from the book to bring it all together. And you say, people are not things to be manipulated, labeled, boxed, bought and sold. Above all else, they are not human resources. We are entire human beings containing the whole of the evolving universe. We must examine the concept of superior and subordinate with increasing skepticism. We must examine the concept of management and labor with new beliefs. We must examine the concept of leader and follower with new perspectives. And above all else, we must examine the nature of organizations that demand such distinctions with new consciousness. I absolutely love that passage from the book. And I think it's a nice compliment for what you just delivered to us. But now, back to your story, back to the narrative, you had to use all these concepts and philosophies, the idea of adducing behaviors of leading people by leading yourself and allowing them come to their own conclusions through your power of persuasion. And you had to use these to your best of your ability to bring the CEOs on this journey, which you to agree to a plan. Yes, well, Sam Stewart was as good as his word and uh, notified me that he arranged the meeting. And uh, we met with a group of uh, approximately 10 CEOs or uh, officers of banks that reported directly to the CEOs. I had no, no training and just had to rely on my beliefs when we uh, conducted the meeting. And Sam opened it by saying he appreciated their coming and I was going to discuss a, a monumental undertaking of converting to a whole new concept of cooperative ownership by all the banks. And then he turned the meeting over to me. Well, I did my best. I gave them all the history of how we'd gotten uh, to this point after a year and a half of effort. And then I presented the bylaws, the operating regulation, did all that in, in less than an hour and opened the meeting to discussion. And I was bombarded by incredible questions and, and did my best to answer them honestly and cooperatively. And I can remember telling them that this was not all going to be uh, uh, rosy, that 
the benefits it could bring would dwarf any of the times when their ox was being gored. And when we were uh, nearing the end of the meeting, they uh, asked me if I would leave the meeting because they wanted to have some private discussions among themselves. And I was greatly surprised, but had no choice but to agree. So I left the meeting and spent uh, probably the most difficult half hour of waiting I'd ever had in my life, full of anxiety about what they were talking about and what might come of it. They called me back into the office and said they were all committed to join the organization. They would all call a similar meeting of CEOs in their region, to which it could be presented, but one condition. They would not agree unless I would agree to become the first CEO of the new organization and run it for at least three years. They felt that uh, it would be too big a risk to proceed with unknown management, and I'd been successful in getting to this point, and they thought perhaps I could be equally successful in directing the new organization. And they authorized uh, Sam Stewart to negotiate with me as to terms and conditions. I was faced with a situation where if I didn't agree, uh, I couldn't get their acceptance. And if I did agree, I'd have to leave an area where I love to live. I'd have to move my family to San Francisco. I'd have to leave my two boys who are about to go to college at the University of Washington. But I did some immediate thinking and realized that I simply had no choice. That I didn't want to live in a big city. I didn't really want to run an, an organization of this kind. I had thought I was simply doing a bit of civic duty to try to get it to this point. And so I agreed to negotiate with Sam. Uh, I had presented the whole thing to them at one meeting, and they had come back after considering it to a second meeting. And it was at the second meeting which this all occurred. So uh, I had no choice, but I had, if I took the position the commitment of a dozen of the most prominent banks among the licensees, which was a huge step. That left me with uh, the need to agree that they would go back, they would sequence the meetings over a period of a week so that I could apply to one meeting for the morning and uh, present it to all the CEOs of a region, uh, get on an airplane and fly to another city that evening or night, go into another meeting for a minimum of eight consecutive meetings, at which, the end of which the program would have been presented at the top of all the banks. 
And after that presentation, they would all have 30 days to return to their uh, respective banks, consider it carefully, and agree or sign the same identical membership agreement and join or not join the organization. And we established some criteria that if 60% or less of the banks accepted, the organization and the project would be killed. If uh, between 60% and 80% of the banks agreed, we would have a second opportunity to refine the bylaws and repeat the process. But if 80% of the banks agreed or more, the agreements they had signed would be automatically in effect. The company would be organized, and we felt that we probably would lose uh, 10 to 20% of the banks who just wouldn't agree. So I undertook one of the most difficult weeks of my life, flying and, and conducting these meetings, then returning home to see how many uh, came in or how many didn't. So at this stage, D, it's interesting to think back to your incredible work ethic that you picked up as a young child. This work ethic and your work rate paid off hugely because to rally support, you had a grueling schedule, 12 days, 12 cities and 200 banks and hundreds of people that you needed to adduce and bring you on the journey with you. Yes. Now that we had all the documentation to all of the card issuing banks, with the understanding that they would give us an answer within uh, 30 days. Return to Seattle saved time and energy. I'd stopped going into my office at the National Bank of Commerce, set up a little office in my home in a spare room, and was working from there. So I returned there, and I had kept very carefully a complete list of all the people that had attended the meetings so that I keep track of what was happening. During the first week, few acceptances started to trickle in, and then that gradually became greater and greater. And meanwhile, I was busy on the telephone from five in the morning to hit the East Coast banks, calling back to find out if they had any questions, where they were standing, and so on. In the second week, these uh, acceptances uh, turned into a flood, and uh, in no time we had surpassed uh, 40% of the banks, and by the middle of the third week, we were well over our threshold of 60% of the banks, at which time the organization would come into being. But I wasn't satisfied with that. I kept calling and calling everyone that hadn't accepted and gradually moved up and passed all the thresholds. And by the fourth week, we were uh, well into the 90% range, and they were still coming in. And I became obsessed with the idea that although we expected to lose 10 to 20% of the banks, 
was it possible that we could get them all? <laughs> so uh, with this endless telephone work for the better part of a month, my ear became swollen and red from holding the <laughs> receiver against it. But I, I just kept calling and calling. And eventually, a couple of three days before the deadline, we were down to one call left to make. There was only one bank that still felt it was a mistake and was not going to join. I called the uh, senior officer of that bank, whom I knew well, and said, uh, Frank, I'm, I'm sorry to make this call. I know you're not going to join, and I know there's no way to persuade you. But I felt compelled to call because of some circumstances that you might not be aware of. And, of course, he was immediately curious and said, what circumstances? And I said, well, I, I hate to say this, and I don't know any way to make it very uh, polite, but I want you to know that you're the only bank in the whole system who has not agreed to uh, become a member, a cooperative member owner of the new corporation. <laughs> <laughs> there was a moment or two of silence, and he said, well, we may be the only bank today, but we'll not be the only bank tomorrow. I'll see that we join. And I had a moment of feeling almost euphoria that we had accomplished the impossible job of getting every one of the banks. We then held a... Uh, First meeting of all the members, uh, elected a board of directors, uh, largely composed of the chief executives that have been on my CEO organizing committee, and and uh, it, re it involved uh, a, a board member from every uh, uh, region of the country, uh, a board member elected by the smallest banks. Uh, four extra seats for B of A for four years in recognition of their creation of the system and willingness to surrender ownership, myself, and so on. And uh, at that meeting, when it was all over, I'd never conducted such a meeting as in my life. Sam Stewart, who is, had been such a mentor and asset in getting this done, Vice Chairman of the Board of B of A said, yes, Mr. President, I have a question and a comment. And I said, well, I recognized him that, oh, my goodness, what's coming now? And he stood up and said, I just want all of the members to know that when you told me we needed to do this in 90 days, I told you there was no way on earth it could be done in 90 days. And he said, now I want to tell all of you, I haven't changed my mind one bit. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it all erupted in laughter. Well, that left me in the position of moving to San Francisco, while at the same time taking over the operation of this system with over uh, $3 billion of volume. Uh, and run a company. Uh, it had no offices yet, 
no employees, no equipment, no capital, and was $15 million in debt for payment to the B of A for surrendering of the system and organizational expenses as we uh, completed the uh, acquisition of all the banks. Dee, throughout this entire journey and achieving the impossible feat, first of all, which was bringing all these banks together, you never stopped reading and questioning with the little time you had, and you constantly mulled over some philosophies. So let's share a couple of those philosophies now. Many of our listeners will recognize that working in big organizations and corporations, they can feel like a number or worse, like a cog in a machine. And there's a quote I pulled from the book, which is, why and how did we begin efforts to make men behave like machines and to make machines behave like men? When and why did we begin to think the earth as separate from mankind, a warehouse of free material to make gadgets for consumption in a mechanistic money economy, a free dump for poisons and waste? What if the very concept of separability, mind-body, cause-effect, mankind-nature, competition, corporation, public-private, man-woman, you and me, is a grand delusion of Western civilization epitomized by the industrial age? useful in certain scientific ways of knowing, but fundamentally flawed with respect to understanding and wisdom. For all the wonders of modern science and its obsession with measurement, we believe life will never surrender its secrets to a yardstick. I thought that was a great quote to just show how we live in the society that's obsessed with measurement and mechanistic properties. Over the years of reading and trying to master the four ways of thinking about organizations as they were, as they are, as they might become, and as they ought to be. It seemed to me the future should have our best thoughts and energy. It seldom does in the stress and strain of modern life. If one examines organizations as they might become or as they ought to be, the specifics of that which we know has to yield to the abstracts of that which we can conceive. And perception is the primary means by which we cast up new concepts. But therein lies a serious problem. For uh, somewhere in the middle of perception is a funhouse mirror of perspective. And it distorts and discolors everything we know, think, or imagine. Therefore, when we're considering the future, One's a frame of reference, in a word, the perspective that experience indelibly implants in each of us is all important. It's our individual perspective that discolors, distorts our perception, blinding us to how things might become or conceiving how they ought to be. And out of the things we're taught, experienced, and observed, we slowly erect an internal edifice, an internal temple of reality, gradually filling it with the furniture of habit, custom preferences, belief, and bias. We get comfortable there. It's our sanctuary. Through its windows, we view society and the world. This internal temple of reality is how we make sense of the world. 
And it can be a, a badly built place indeed, even if it's well constructed. It may have become archaic. Everything that gave rise to it may have changed because society and the natural world are never stagnant. They're constantly becoming. When it becomes necessary to develop a new perception of things, a new internal temple, the problem is never to get new ideas in. The problem is to get the old ideas out. It's like a room filled with old furniture. It's familiar. It's comfortable. We hate to throw it out. But the old maxim so often applied to the physical world, nature abhors a vacuum, is much more applicable to the mental world. Clear any room in your mind of old perspectives and new perceptions will rush in. Yet uh, there is nothing we fear more. Part of us no longer exists. These internal models can be regenerated, but they're never as they were before. So we're all embedded in an increasingly complex, diverse number of communities, cities, states, nations, governments, churches, corporations, schools, neighborhoods, and countless other societal entities, to say nothing of the natural world. And within these communities, at the superficial sensory level, we continually act, experience the result of those acts, learn from the experience, make decisions based on that, earning, and act again. And this is a continuous flow, not a linear process. And at a conscious level, we assimilate experience, relate it to other experience, attempt to understand the relevance and make projections about the future based on it. It's those projections which largely determine the decisions we make, the acts we take, and the results we experience. So I began to question, if that's the case, what is our internal model of reality? Is it common to all people? Is it unique to the individual? And that led me to uh, explore the societal forms, the DNA of which is really lost in antiquity, going back to Aristotle, Plato, and even before. And However, it was Newtonian science and Cartesian philosophy which breathed life into them and fathered the concept of hierarchical command and control organizations giving rise to the machine metaphor. And that metaphor has dominated our thinking, the nature of our organizations, structure of society, our internal temple of reality, to an extent few of us really realize. It led us to believe that the universe and everything in it whether physical, biological, or social, could only be understood as clock-like mechanisms composed of separate parts acting on one another with precise linear laws of cause and effect. It maintained that if we could once understand the parts of something and the laws governing them, we can reconstruct the whole 
into a predictable, controllable mechanism uh, acting in our, accordance with our desires. And we've been working diligently for more than three centuries to organize society in accordance with that concept, believing that with ever more reduction of scientific knowledge, ever more specialization, ever more technology, ever more efficiency, ever more linear education, ever more rules and regulations, ever more command and control management, we could engineer societal organizations in which we could issue commands at one place and get precise results at another and know with certainty which commands to issue for which results. Never mind that human beings must be made to believe as cogs and wheels in the process. Over time, what we have gotten is all too obvious. Obscene maldistribution of wealth and power, environmental devastation, and crumbling societies. And just as Newtonian science and philosophy were the fathers of those concepts, the industrial age was the mother. And the unique process of handcrafting was largely abandoned as the industrial age emerged and replaced it with machine crafting. That meant the privacy of guilds for commercial organization and kingdoms for political organization were abandoned in favor of mechanistic command and control, nations, cities, corporations, and university. And to produce huge quantity of goods and service, knowledge, and conformist people, those organizations amassed resources, centralized authority, routinized practices, and enforced conformity. And this created, in turn, a class of managers expert at reducing variability and diversity, the uniform, repetitive assembly line processes endlessly repeated with ever-increasing efficiency. So the industrial age became the age of such management. It also became the age of the physical scientist, whose primary function was to replace holistic ways of understanding with particularized specialized knowledge. And it did this through uniform, repetitive laboratory processes, endlessly repeated with ever increasing precision. And in time, universities obtained an oligopoly on training, accreditation, and production of both scientists and managers. And this all led to one of those immense paradoxes of which the universe is infinitely capable, and it's having profound effect. The highest levels of management in all organizations, commercial, political, educational, and social, are now formed of an interchangeable cognitive elite with immense self-interest in preservation of existing forms and organization. 
and the ever-increasing concentration of power and wealth that they inevitably, inevitably bring. At the same time, those organizations are spawning an incredible array of scientific and technological innovation, immense hinges of change, which have created enormous diversity and complexity in the way people live, work, and play, which in turn requires chaotic concepts as organization that more equitably distribute power and wealth, unshackle human ingenuity, and restore harmony between the, home, uh, the organizations, the, uh, the human spirit, and the biosphere. And the essential thing to remember is not that we became a world of expert managers and specialists, but that the nature of our expertise became the creation and control of uniformity and efficiency, while the need has become the understanding and coordination of variability and complexity, the very process of change. It's really all not complicated. The nature of our organization's management and scientific expertise is not only increasingly irrelevant to our enormous societal and environmental problems, it's a primary cause of them. Listening to you there, I thought how these things have only got worse. They've only proliferated these challenges, the mechanistic view of the world. And so many organizations are trying to transform, they're trying to change and 70 to 75% of change initiatives actually fail, because we can't easily change business models until we change mental models. And you say in the book, even with Visa, although the core concept of Visa was chaotic, most members remained mechanistic and linear. They did not fully understand and exploit the concept of chaotic corporations. Many continually tried to reimpose an old structure and old management practices with which they were comfortable. And as growth exploded, managers hired into the organizations without fully understanding or practicing the beliefs and concepts on which it was based. And just like your experiences when you achieved success with other businesses, the mechanistic method tried to force its hand on your chaotic ways. Well, Aiden, that all has to do with what happened after we formed Visa, or rather National Bank America incorporated its predecessors. So I found myself in an unbelievable position three years before I'd been sorting trash in the basement of a bank looking for lost deposits. And now I was sitting on a CEO over an organization with billions of dollars of volume in a terrible mess with no office, no capital, and $15 million of debt. So I, I had to think of ways in which we could overcome all of those things and, and get on with running the system. So I, um, I went to the Bank of America to Sam Stewart and said, look, I have no employees, no office right now, but you have a vacant building that's sitting empty 
when you moved into your new high-rise towers, could we borrow some of that empty space temporarily for an office? He said, well, yes, I think we'd do that. And for a reasonable period of time, there's no need to pay rent. And I said, well, that's wonderful. Thank you. But would it also be possible to uh, borrow seven or eight of your employees who are highly experienced in systems and credit card and so on and have you released them like Maxwell Carlson released me so that they could work directly for me with no obligation to represent the interests of the bank but to imply all their intelligence and effort under my direction to um, the evolution of the system. And we would undertake to pay you eventually all the cost of their whole salary and benefits, plus a 20% premium for uh, having borrowed them. And he said, well, I think that might be very difficult, but I think we could handle that. And I said, well, fine. So immediately I had an office and a a beginning set of temporary employees. We then located a bunch of used furniture, file cabinets, dropped uh, cords from the ceiling of the office space we were taking, much as I did at National Bank of Commerce when we took over the cafeteria. And we commenced operations. And then I began hiring as rapidly as I could a key staff. And it was difficult because I couldn't offer them very high salaries. We had no benefits. We had no assurance the new organization was going to succeed. And all I could do was appeal to them and say, those things will come in time quite rapidly, but what I'm offering you is an opportunity to do a significant work that could change the way people live and work and operate worldwide. So I had to sell them on the concept of where I thought it could go. And it did prove attractive, and we developed a good staff. And we began addressing the problems. In the process of developing the corporation, we had managed to persuade all the licensees meeting in the committees agreed to adopt a telex system to replace telephone as authorization, which had made a big improvement. And I had also undertaken to do a priority survey of every bank ask listing a series of things that I thought the new organization should address to clean up the mess, then asking them to rank those priorities on a scale of one to 10, in which case we would assemble it and send back to the banks the nationwide ranking of the problems to be addressed. So I had a good idea when we commenced operation of the new organization of what should be done. And primarily, 
it involved creating an authorization, an electronic authorization system as the first priority. But a problem immediately presented itself because the night before we held the first meeting of members, the Bank of America came to me and said they were doing something that they felt I ought to be aware of before we had the meeting and revealed that they had been in discussions with American Express to create an electronic authorization system to be owned by the bank and American Express, and that the users of that would put up a sizable sum of money to become a potential user of it, and they would use that as capital to create the organization and implement it. Well, I felt that was a complete betrayal of everything uh, the bank had promised. But I also realized that that may have evolved in a different area of the bank that Sam Stewart had no knowledge of what was being attempted. So I had to just uh, say nothing, swallow that as an obstacle to be overcome. But I believed that I didn't need to oppose it or argue about it because I thought it had no chance of really being accepted by the banks because they knew the new organization would also be undertaking that problem. So I said nothing and uh, went ahead. And the first thing we did is uh, is uh, have the member banks in concert with us create a set of operating procedures which we could adopt and which would then become a mandatory to clean up some of the internal uh, draft clearing and other problems. So we uh, had adopted that as part of the organizing structure. And that meant we could move ahead to refine it and add additional procedures without uh, renegotiating any licenses, and it would automatically be binding under the uh, new organization. Within the year, we were faced with another situation. The uh, American Bankers Association believed that any electronic systems should be natural monopolies like the Federal Reserve Clearing System and should be owned and governed and organized with government uh, sanctions and procedures. They didn't believe that authorization and draft clearing systems could ever be a competitive enterprise. Well, as head of uh, National Bank of America, I was, of course, asked to sit on all these committees. And as I became familiar with what they were trying to do, I thought it was ridiculous that it would be an endless, endless succession of meetings where people talked about this, but no action could ever be taken. So I um, became convinced that we could build our own authorization system 
which would then force MasterCard and other card systems to attempt to build theirs. So I went to the board with a rather extraordinary proposal. I asked them to authorize me to reject the totality of a natural monopoly and proceed to build our own system, which I thought could be done at a cost of around $3 million. And this, of course, to my board was a very radical proposal. But most of them knew of the successes I had had in building the organization and the virtually impossible problems we'd overcome. So as we neared the end of the meeting, uh, one of the directors kind of sighed and said, all right, I'm in favor of this. How would the rest of you feel about joining me and taking this shot in the dark? (laughs) And of course, uh, they all agreed. So I had consent to uh, withdraw from all the industry discussions and announce we were going to create our own system within a year. Well, that uh, created a furor in the banking industry, but uh, something we could ignore. And I, at that time, it was best in developing a major software program or electronic system to go to a professional outside company and have them do it on a contract basis, companies that had been experienced in doing this. The man I had hired to direct this effort persuaded me that was the proper way to go, went to the, uh, contracted with a large organization and let them proceed to attempt it. Well, within two months, he was back to me saying, well, they had started the work and were on the way, but they'd found it was going to cost double what they had originally projected and take a longer period of time. I knew that would be disastrous uh, to us. So I had no choice. I told them, the fellow we had hired, to notify them that we were not going to go down that road because it had become customary in in the industrial field to find software developments always requiring more money and always requiring more time. But I refused. I said, we're going to take a different path. So we uh, canceled the contract with the outside organization. The person I had hired to proceed it resigned. And I just pulled all my officers who had over a year's experience. And we developed a very capable staff. I said, we're going to go in a room. We're going to lock the door and we're not going to come out until we have a plan. And that's precisely what we did. And out of that grew what we came to call Base One. That stood for Bank Authorization System Experimental. We leased an empty floor of a building, filled it with people, and proceeded as I had done it my time with the National Bank of Commerce, to just get a group of people, let it self-organize, let it emerge. 
Well, that in no time in this empty, we released the floor of an empty building. We dropped telephone cords, bar-like structures that were used in hospitals to hang screens, isolate areas. They were unrolling wheels so that we could reconfigure the inside of that empty building in any way we wanted, within minutes, any time we wanted. And it self-organized. The people we had assigned to it developed a system they called the dirty coffee cup system. They took one wall of the empty building, plastered it with whiteboard, put a calendar across the top, listing the dates of every day for the coming nine months. And then they started writing tags, little pieces of paper on which segments of the problem and the software that had to be developed could be entered. And they put all of those on the whiteboard so that they added additional tasks. They attached a piece of string to the top of the whiteboards and needed something to hold it in place. So they tied it to the handle of a dirty coffee cup. And every day they would move that string uh, ahead to the next day. And that way they could see all of the tasks that remained to be done. And they could see any of the tasks that were falling behind. And uh, it's self-organized. And it became a matter of pride for the people to get any a task they had volunteered to undertake that needed to be done and do it ahead of time and therefore be able to help people whose tasks had fallen behind the string. And so for nine months, that string moved inexorably across day by day and the groups all self-organized, volunteered tasks, very little top-down management. And the net result is nine months later, they delivered on time, under budget, a fully operational electronic system for the authorization of bank card transactions. And it not only was on time and under budget, it exceeded the capabilities of anything we had imagined. And that was implemented uh, by the board and the management. And within six months, it had reduced expenses and improved profits to the point that it paid for the entire cost of developing the system. And it returned that same sum of money again within the next 90 days, within the next 60 days, and eventually returned the $3 million investment virtually every month going forward. Uh, well, that developed an immense credibility for the new organization. And it led me to always point out to our employees and groups that our capital was really not money. Our capital was credibility. And if we could maintain impeccable credibility 
all the money and business we needed would find us. We wouldn't have to find it. Well, as soon as that was in operation, we undertook to create another system uh, to follow it up called BASE-2, which would be a progressive method of eliminating the movement of paper from merchants to car to merchant signing bank to card issuing bank and eventually back to the customer. At that time, all bank cards were using what is called country club billing. With every bill they sent out, they attached the copy of the sales draft the customer had executed just as they had been accustomed to returning canceled checks. And so we uh, approached it the same way we had literally approached base one with that growing group of people and sat down in a room and said, what is the quickest, easiest, least expensive way we could take a significant step in building this base system and truncating the paper. Well, within a few hours, they'd come up with an idea. Inexpensive tape transmission units that could use magnetic tape and could communicate by telephone. And we would place one in a bank that was a member in Alaska another in New England, another in Florida, others in the Midwest and the West Coast. And we would put uh, eight of them out. We would then write a simple software program to dial up each of those units, download all of the data electronically, sort it by card issuing bank, and that night make a transmission to all of the eight banks of the uh, cardholder transaction of theirs that had been executed in these other markets. And uh, of course, the merchant signing banks in each of those areas would do a simple program to separate the transactions on their cardholders and just spool out all the others on all the other eight banks through the tape transmission machine. This experiment was to end at the end of 90 days because it would truncate uh, all of the paper between those eight banks. And it was also test if the card issuing bank could print a facsimile copy of a draft from the electronic data which they could then mail to the customer and to see if members would accept a facsimile rather than the original. Well, at the end of 90 days, when we called the banks to tell them the test had been very successful and we were now disbanding it to build a system based on what we learned, all eight of them refused to give up their tape transmission unit. And without our knowing it, they had already stopped sending the original paper or draft to the issuing bank. And uh, they said it was so uh, 
efficiently, we're, we're not going to give it up. So we finally agreed to let them continue as we build what we call base two. And base two uh, was an effort in the beginning to simply truncate the paper that moved from the uh, merchant signing bank to the card issuing bank, uh, which was an immense saving of time and an immense savings of money and an immense improvement in customer service. And then the base system would develop incrementally over a period of time until we had eliminated the um, return of either a facsimile or an original draft to the customer and truncate all the movement of paper between the banks and substitute electronic digital transmission. This, of course, literally uh, revolutionized the card issuing business. And within three to four years, the mess had been cleaned up and the business became the single most profitable service of virtually any bank in the nation. It caused a literal explosion in uh, card growth and member banks coming into the system, as well as forcing all of our competitors to follow our lead and develop their own systems. So I found myself after three to four years with an incredibly successful organization. The important thing to remember is that what we were doing at the time was way ahead of what uh, has happened recently. The success of the system, the profits to the U.S. banks, and the success of Visa uh, caused all of the international licensees of B of A to attempt to build such an organization themselves. And they failed. They couldn't do it. So they came to Visa and asked, not Visa at that time, but the National Bank of Mericard. They came to National Bank of Mericard and asked if uh, I would undertake uh, to become the organizing agent for the international banks and to see if I could help them replicate uh, and organize the system globally. Well, that was a monumental undertaking and would involve the U.S. board approval to do it and them releasing me from any obligation to uh, National Bank of Mericard and represent the total interests of the international licensees. Well, we worked out a way to do that in which I would undertake to organize the international banks. And in doing that, it might, in many ways, create things that would be somewhat detrimental to the U.S. system. So it was agreed that the chairman of the executive committee of the board of uh, National Bank of Mericard would uh, represent the bank interests 
any time I was faced with such a conflict of interest. So uh, I found myself in the position of continuing as CEO of National Bank AmeriCard, as well as undertaking to replicate the organizational structure of Visa in a somewhat different way that would be suitable to the international operation.